As is the custom on the second Sunday night of the month, we field questions that have been asked. Sometimes we can get uh, more than one. Tonight we're only going to be dealing with one question. As has already been announced, it's not really one of a doctrinal nature, but it is one of somewhat practical nature, helping us in our lives. The question's been asked, what does the Bible say about overcoming depression and anxiety? And I hope that we can take a look at what the Bible says about overcoming that, helping us have joy and peace and contentment in our lives as Christians. I think this is an important question, namely because take a look at Galatians 5.22 that lists the fruit of the Spirit. Two of the fruit there are peace and joy. Take a look at the promise that Paul offers in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 and verse 9, where Paul promises that, that the God of peace, who has a peace which passes understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. And when I hear those promises, I have to admit I find it somewhat troubling when we note that anecdotally, the religious Christians seem to be facing depression and anxiety in about the same percentages and numbers as the world is. How can that happen when God has promised us peace and joy? Now, having said that, I recognize that where there are medical issues involved, there will need to be medical solutions. And I do not wish to minimize that at all. Where there are medical problems, there will need to be medical care. And if you're facing that, I hope that nothing I say tonight will be seen as me trying to offer some type of medical advice, because that's not what I'm doing at all. However, I do recognize that we live in a society and in a time where very easily every sin that we commit is given a medical label. And we have to be very careful. I think that very easily we can turn into a society or a group of people that so honors medicine that we immediately, whenever there's a problem, turn to some type of medical solution when what we may have needed to do was just change our behavior based upon the Word of God. And so I want to offer us a caution to make sure that we don't ever mask sin with medicine. Whatever the choice is, whatever's going on, let's make sure. If there is a medical need, then let's take a medical course of action. But let's make sure first that it's not just an issue of I need to change my behavior to become more in line with God's Word so that I can have the peace and the joy that He has promised. So exactly what is it that we need to do to have peace and joy and contentment, to overcome depression and anxiety. Well, of course, we can throw out the verse that we often hear in Philippians chapter 4, <laughs> verse 6. I'm probably going to have a lot harder time refraining from the coughing fit because I had to do the Bible drill a few minutes ago. <coughs> but anyway, in Philippians 4 and verse 6, where it points out that we need to uh, get rid of all anxiousness and make our requests known to God. We know that Peter promised that we can cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. But what exactly does that mean? Does that simply mean if I pray properly or if I pray enough that that is going to somehow take away all of my anxieties and any depression that I might have? 
Or is there something more to that? I think there's something more. I don't think the issue is I can live and think and talk and act however I want to, and then if I say the appropriate prayer, God will come in and mystically take away depression and anxiety. Rather, I think the idea of casting our cares upon the Lord, of living a life that lays our requests before the Lord, is a lifestyle that we need to adopt that will help us overcome depression and anxiety. Now, understand, if, if that's the answer, then it's not necessarily simple, and it's certainly not going to be overnight. There's not one single thing that I can say to you tonight here, if you suffer from depression and anxiety, that will cause you, by the end of this lesson, to be free from that. There's not one single thing that I can say to you if you suffer from depression and anxiety that means you'll be free from it by tomorrow or maybe even next week. But I hope I can share with you some things about a biblical lifestyle that given time, as you apply these principles to your life, you will realize that the God of peace, who has a peace that does pass understanding, is really guarding your heart and your mind. It will take time. But we can overcome depression and anxiety. And we can be a people that have joy, peace, contentment, and blessedness. And I think that the answer, the lifestyle that provides that joy, can be seen in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with eight statements that all begin with the word, blessed. A word which conveys the idea not merely of happiness, but of a joy, a peace, and a contentment that is founded and grounded not upon our fickle emotions based upon what's just going on in our lives today, but that's based upon the sure blessings and promises of God that will allow us, no matter what we face, to be able to do so with a joy and a peace and a contentment. And and I'm not saying that there won't ever be moments of sadness. A loved one dies, and that's sad. If you didn't get sad because of that, there'd be a problem with you. The Bible points out that there are times for us to weep with those who weep. And so we're not talking about we should never have sadness. But that should not, as Christians, be what governs our lives. And when we live by these principles taught here in Matthew 5, verses 3 through verse 11, I believe we'll find over time a lifestyle that grants us peace, joy, contentment, and blessedness based upon the promises of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Before we examine those statements, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we do come before you, casting our cares upon you. <laughs> we know that within our midst tonight, there are folks who have loved ones that are sick, ailing, some that are even dying. We pray that you would give each of these strength to face this time as they mourn the loss of loved ones. We pray that you would strengthen them to turn to you and to turn to each other so that we can all grow in you and help each other and lift each other up. We know that others are facing illnesses that are not life-threatening, but certainly can be depressing to notice those things. We pray that you would be their strength, be our strength, and help us to lean on you, recognizing that, that you are the God that provides help. Father, we recognize that there are some who have been dealt financial blows, whether because of taxes or loss of job or other reasons, because of health bills. Father, we pray that you would be with each of these, that they will lean on you recognizing that eternity doesn't come from the money that we make, but it comes from your grace. Father, we recognize that there are some who are dealing with depression and anxiety because of our own sins that we've committed. We pray that you would help us to overcome our sins and turn away from them. We pray that you would forgive us so that we can pursue righteousness. Father, we recognize that there are numerous reasons why people in the world and your children are sometimes faced with depression and anxiety, and we pray that you would help us to have the strength to cast our lives over on you so that we might overcome and have joy and peace and contentment and blessedness, not just sometime in the future when we finally arrive in heaven, but even here on earth so that we might stand out in the world and folks will want to know what provides us with the joy that we have. Father, thank you so much for sending your Son to die for us, for sending your Spirit to reveal the Word, because these things provide us with a foundation and a grounding that helps us to face this life, to realize that we look forward to an eternity that is so much better than what we face here, and help us to maintain a joy and a peace as we look forward to heaven. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. We love you. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. I want to take a look at these statements here. We're going to, we're going to put them in twos. We're just going to look at them in, in couplets. I think for the sake of our lesson tonight, they kind of go together like that. And so we recognize that if we want blessing, the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. Now I realize that seems counterintuitive. How could it be that those who are broken, who have a poverty of spirit, who, who are so broken in spirit that they're mourning and sad, could be the ones that are blessed, have joy and peace, and contentment. I'll tell you what this says to me. This says to me that perhaps depression and anxiety are not the black pits that we sometimes think they are. They're not the end of the road. They're not the worst thing that could ever happen to us. In fact, what this demonstrates to me is that perhaps sometimes depression and anxiety are actually the beginning of having a true joy and peace and contentment if we deal with them properly, if we recognize them for what they are. But the problem is, we so often think that depression and anxiety are just such bad things that we want to try to eradicate them, just get rid of them in everybody. And what we try to do is try to pump them up or cheer them up. And, and they're sitting there thinking that I, I'm lost, I'm hopeless, it's awful. And we're trying to pump them up and say, no, 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 you're really not. Things are really great. You're really good. 
perhaps instead of trying to pump people up and cheer people up and get them to get rid of their depression and anxiety, what we need to do is get them to embrace it and realize what it really means. Why is it we're depressed and anxious? And what does it say about us? Is it not that we have weakness, helplessness, hopelessness? That's what's going on in our lives when we face those things. I'm weak. I'm helpless. I can't seem to face it. And now I feel badly about that. According to these two Beatitudes, that's exactly what all of us are supposed to feel. You see, here's the problem. Every single one of us have sinned. And because every single one of us has sinned, that is exactly what we are. Weak, helpless, and hopeless. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 spells it out clearly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if you want to see it in just how bad it really is, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Here's where we were. Here's where some of us are. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I'm not saying that all our depression and anxiety sins directly from sin, but I'm just pointing out that because of our sin, all those bad feelings we've ever had about ourselves, they're true. We are weak. We are helpless. We are hopeless. In fact, look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is where we are because of our sins. And all too often, what we try to do when folks face depression and anxiety, oh, no, it's not that bad. No, it really is. It really is that bad. You really are that weak. You really are that helpless. You really are that hopeless. And we've got to come to grips with that. Because we have to be the broken in spirit who mourns if we ever want to be the blessed by God. Because as long as we try to pump ourselves up and think that, no, really, I'm better than this, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and hey, people like me, you know, we're always going to be like Paul in Romans 7, where he says there all that he tried to do on his own, and it didn't work. Remember the passage in Romans 7, beginning of verse 7, he talked about his sinful life? He said, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, in verse 11, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. 
So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That sounds to me like depression and anxiety. And that's what faces us. So long as we keep trying to say, no, I really am good enough. So long as we just try to pump people up and cheer them up, all it's going to be is a roller coaster of, yeah, I feel good right now, but then I come back to realizing, no, I'm not doing the things I want. I'm not doing the will of God. I know I want to, but I keep messing up and keep causing all these problems. That's what Paul was thinking. But you see, once we recognize the truth of what that means for us, our weakness, our helplessness, our hopelessness, that is when we, along with Paul, will then be able to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is when we, along with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, will be able to say along with Paul, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I can only be strong enough when I quit thinking I'm strong enough. When I realize I'm not, and I can't do it, and I'm weak, and I'm helpless and hopeless, until I turn to Christ. Which then leads us to the second couplet of Beatitudes, where Jesus said, Blessed are the meek who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is only when I finally realize how weak and helpless and hopeless that I am that I will finally turn to the real source of strength. It's only when I have embraced what my depression and anxiety really says about me that I will finally turn wholly and completely to the one who can change me. And that's what it means to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Meekness is the idea of a person who is so emptied of self that they turn to the only source of strength that's out there. To God. Meekness is not acting weak. 
It is not submitting because I have no choice but to submit. Meekness is holding the strength that I do have in check because I realize that my strength is worthless. And so I submit to the one whose strength counts. I submit to God. And I'll tell you what, that idea of being able to cast our cares upon the Lord, I think right here is where we see the crux of it. How can we possibly cast our cares upon the Lord if we refuse to cast our lives upon the Lord? And that's what meekness is. Meekness is saying, I know I'm weak. I know that I can't do it, so all I'm, I'm just going to do what God wants me to do. I'm just going to let Him be in control. I'm just going to read His Word and submit to what He said because He's the one that has strength. And I don't. And that meekness is demonstrated by that next step of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. That, that word hunger there is pretty powerful. It's the same word that was used of Jesus in the last chapter when it said that he'd been fasting for 40 days and afterwards he was hungry. Same word here. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I want to be righteous so bad I can taste it. And we see an example of it in Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, excuse me, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul wanted righteousness. He said, I have given everything else up so that I can have righteousness. And not the righteousness that comes from my own strength, but the righteousness that comes from God by my faith in Christ. See, that's the meekness. That I have such faith in Christ that I just do what He says. So I didn't earn anything. I just did what Jesus said. I've got the righteousness that God's given me because I just believed Jesus and did what He said all the time. And I got rid of everything else that got in the way. One of our problems is we have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we have a hunger and thirst for a lot of other things, too. And sometimes our hunger and thirst for power or fame or influence or money or material things or leisure or pleasure gets in the way. Meekness says, I give all that up. 
I hunger and thirst for the righteousness that comes from Jesus. If He blesses me with some of those other things because while I was obeying Him and doing His will, that's great. That's fine. But if He doesn't, who cares? Those weren't the things I was hungering for anyway. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness so much that I'll count everything else as loss. If I have to give up my job, so be it, because I want righteousness. If I have to give up my house, so be it, I want righteousness. If I have to give up my place in the community, in the society, even before my brethren, so be it, because I want righteousness more than I want anything else. I'm not saying that's an easy attitude to have, and I'm not saying that I've got it. But that's what Paul's saying. And that's what we need to be working at. That's where we need to be growing. Because as long as we allow the, hunger, the other hungers and thirsts to creep in, we're going to always struggle with our broken spirit and the depression and the anxiety. But when we cast our lives over onto Jesus, again, this is not overnight. I'm not saying you just say a prayer tonight saying, Jesus, I'm casting my life over to you, and it goes away. But as we work on that, as we grow in it, we'll find peace and contentment, and joy. And I understand it's a growth process. I understand there's always going to be times that we come back in mourning because we messed up. But that's when we gain peace and joy and contentment, knowing that Jesus is a forgiving God. And we meekly submit, and we grow in our pursuit, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. But then Jesus comes back, and he keeps, keeps adding to this. And what we've looked at in these first two couplets have been mostly about our own personal spirituality and our personal goals. The next two statements actually have to do with our relationships with others. And what Jesus says is, Blessed are the merciful, pure in heart. Blessed are those who are merciful, and blessed are those who are pure in heart. And when we look at this, we recognize that this deals with our relationship with other people and our relationship with God. If we want to have blessing that comes from God, we've got to work on our relationships with each other and those around us, and we've got to work on our relationship with God. The, the part about our relationship with each other is that part that says, blessed are the merciful. Now, if you're like me, generally when you see the word mercy, you think forgiveness. But mercy actually has a much larger scope than just forgiveness. Forgiveness is a form of mercy, but it is not the sum total of mercy. Bullinger says in his, uh, in his lexicon, he says that being merciful means to be actively compassionate, not merely unhappy for the ills of others, but desirous of relieving them, not merely pity, but beneficent aid promptly applied. Beneficent aid promptly applied. Benevolence promptly given. Mercy is not just feeling sorry for others. Mercy is not just having sympathy for others. Mercy means actually helping others. Consider an example in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 30, Jesus replied with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. <clears throat> and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, are you ready for his answer? The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What did the Samaritan do? He didn't just feel sorry for him. He showed him mercy. I mean, you think about the Levite and the priest. you think they felt sorry for that man on the side of the road? Do you think they had a little sympathy, a little pity party for him? I'm sure they did. But they didn't do anything. They didn't help him. Mercy means not saying, go, I'm going to pray for you to be warmed and be filled. Mercy means saying, come in. Let me help warm you and fill you. That's mercy. And you know, you've heard people say that even though it's not in the Bible, it ought to be in the Bible, that God helps those who help themselves, right? Actually, what this verse says is, God helps those who help others. Blessed are the merciful, for they're the ones that receive mercy. If we want to have peace and joy and contentment, instead of being so focused on us and all the things that are happening in our lives and wondering why somebody's not showing us some mercy, what this verse says is we've got to get out and start showing others some mercy. Focus on them. Help them in their needs. And then God will grant mercy to us. And then it goes on and talks about our relationship with God as it talks about the pure in heart. Now, we might be tempted to believe that the pure in heart here just has to deal with not having any sin in our heart, but rather being righteous. But Jesus already dealt with that when he talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I think rather here he's dealing with the same point that James made in James chapter 4 and verse 8. In James chapter 4 and verse 8, James wrote, Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you, cleanse your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The point that James is making about having a pure heart is the idea of having a single heart, a heart that is singly devoted to God. When we have double hearts, when we have hearts that are divided, instead of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we're also loving a bunch of other things up there. Then we have impure hearts. And so what he says is if you want to be blessed, if you want to have peace and joy and commitment, your heart has to uh, contentment, your heart has to be singly devoted to God. We have to have the kind of relationship that says, I do love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. Everything is devoted to serving and glorifying Him. I want every aspect of my life to glorify Him. It's about Him and not me. And when we have that, what Jesus said was, we'll be blessed because we'll be able to see God. And I think, of course, that means we'll be able to see Him in eternity. 
But I think there's also the point that those who are pure in heart, those whose hearts and minds and souls are singly devoted to serving the Lord and honoring and glorifying Him, they're the ones that can see God even down here. They can see God all around. And they can recognize that even when I'm going through the bad things, God is still with me. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Keep your life, this is Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? No matter what I face, when my heart is singly devoted to God, I know that God is with me. And I can see Him even as I'm facing the bad things that are happening in my life. So if we want to have blessedness, if we want to have peace and joy and contentment, then we've got to have mercy and we've got to be pure in heart. We've got to focus on our relationship with others and our relationship with God and not be so focused on ourselves. And finally, excuse me just a moment. Trying to make it here. Finally, Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted peacemakers. (coughs) Blessed are the peacemakers. My understanding of this is if you take those last two Beatitudes and the natural outcropping of them is being a peacemaker. When I am merciful and my life is about beneficent aid promptly applied to the people that are around me, and when I am excuse me, pure in heart and my life is about being singly devoted to God and His will, Isn't the natural byproduct of that the fact that I want to bring those two different relationships together? If I want to bestow mercy upon you, because I love you so much, and I'm pure in heart, singly devoted to God because I love Him so much, isn't it just natural that I want to make sure that you and God have a relationship? That I want to make peace Not just between people, not just between me and you, but between you and God. I want to take this message of having the broken spirit over which you mourn, embracing what the depression and anxiety means about how weak and helpless and hopeless you are, causing you to meekly hunger and thirst for righteousness so that you will turn to God and find the strength that He has. I want to help you with that. And so I carry the message to others and produce peace between other people and God. But we understand that despite the fact that everybody wants to overcome depression and anxiety, there are very few people that want to overcome it Jesus' way. And I understand that Most of the people that I say, you know what, instead of just being cheered up, instead of going and listening to your favorite music or or going on a vacation, what you need to do is just realize what your depression and anxiety means about you. 
You really are that weak. You really are that helpless. You really are that hopeless. I mean, even we don't like hearing that, and we know it, right? I have no doubt that there are some folks that are already mad at me tonight. Can't believe he said all that. And so, because of that, we will be the persecutors. We take that message to people, telling them that the only way they can overcome is by turning to Jesus. There's going to be a whole lot of people that don't want to hear us. And they will turn against us. And they will persecute us. But they've done that to our forefathers in the faith for thousands of years the prophets and the apostles who told folks that the only way they could have salvation, the only way they could have blessedness is to turn to Jesus, to turn to God, to, to turn their lives completely over to Him, to realize how weak they are and that they can't do it, they can't beat the enemy, but God can. Folks have been against that for thousands of years. And they will be against it as long as the world stands. But when they treat us that way, we can have joy because we know that we're on God's side. And like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, we can rejoice that we have been considered worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. And because of that, because we have now worked our way through relying on Jesus, submitting to Him totally, being merciful to others, being pure in heart, singly devoted to God, when folks turn against us, we still have joy and peace and contentment and blessedness because we know we're with God and He won't leave us. And in the end, He will save us. And there is not one other thing in this world that can possibly provide us with peace and contentment and joy than remembering what Jesus has in store for those who live according to these Beatitudes. And that's, that's really it. Where else are we going to get that kind of joy and contentment? From our income? From our parties? Only from remembering what Jesus has done for us. And by submitting to Him. That's it. That's it. I trust you can see. This is not some overnight thing. It's not simple. Well, actually, I guess it is kind of simple. Just do what Jesus says. But it's not easy. And we're going to mess up. And we're going to come back to God mourning. And He's going to forgive us because that's why Jesus died. And prayer is certainly an important part of that. As we make our requests known to God with thanksgiving. As we cast our cares onto God because He cares for us. But that only works when it's based on casting our lives on God. And that's going to take some time, isn't it? And so if you're struggling with this, there's not a prayer that we can say tonight that will have it all fixed for you by tomorrow. But if you work on these principles, give it some months, 
maybe even years. I guarantee you'll look back. And you'll see that slowly, peace, joy, contentment, blessedness overcame. And then when we get to eternity, you'll definitely see it.